0: welcome back to the perfect scam i'm your host bob sullivan it's the holiday season and while you are working overtime to get ready criminals are working overtime too the holidays are prime time for scammers to reach out and deceive you while you might be distracted by all the hubbub so we thought it would be a good time to bring back one of our favorite perfect scam episodes it's about one of the most famous christmas season scams ever involving a man who turned children's letters to Santa into a charity empire in New York City, an empire that eventually collapsed in disgrace. It's a bit of a history lesson dating back to the very first time a tree was lit publicly in New York City, back when children still mail letters to Santa Claus. But past is prologue, so there's still plenty to learn from this story, the man who would be Santa Claus. Perfect Scam producer Julie Getz is the host on this one.
1: Our guest this week is Alex Palmer. He's a journalist and New York Times best-selling author who covers travel, culture, and history. His book, The Santa Claus Man: The Rise and Fall of a Jazz Age Con Man and the Invention of Christmas in New York, tells the story of a dapper con artist named John Duval Gluck. Who used a Santa letter answering scheme to make himself rich and famous? It's a fascinating story and one to which Alex has a personal connection. This is Alex. Hi, Alex. It's Julie Getz with AARP's The Perfect Scam. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking with us.
2: Absolutely. John Deval Gluck is actually my great-granduncle and a really fascinating character. In talking to a distant cousin of mine who actually grew up with Gluck, she remembers him just being a a lot of fun, always telling a great story around the dinner table, but also she said you can never really trust him. So she remembered uh, finding him a magnetic, entertaining personality, but also kind of questionable in his his storytelling.
1: What I love about your book, Alex, is that It not only tells the story of your great-uncle's scam, but it also dips into the history of how Americans celebrate Christmas. For instance, I didn't know that before the early 1900s, Christmas celebrations were a lot more low-key than they are now. Yeah
2: around kind of the turn of the century, that's really when Christmas went public. It had been a holiday celebrated in some fashion going back, you know, centuries, but generally it was more celebrated in the home. It was really kind of a family holiday uh, where if people were getting gifts, it was generally homemade gifts and there would be feasts around the dinner table. And celebrated between the direct family and then maybe uh, around New Year's, people would then go and uh, go door to door and visit each other. And that was the time that there would be a little more of a public celebration. But this shifted kind of as mass media took over, as people were being a little more conspicuous in their consumption, and celebrations of Christmas became a little more elaborate and a little more public.
1: An example of that is a story of how New York City started the very first public Christmas tree lighting celebration in 1912 at Rockefeller Center.
2: Everyone from all social strata were invited to come and take part in this celebration. And that was the first time something had been done really on that scale in, in a civic way, sort of a public uh, event like that. And it took off the next year. 50 plus other cities followed in New York's footsteps. And New York, of course, continued the tradition as well.
1: So that was the start of Christmas really becoming a big public celebration in America. What happened from there?
2: A growth and explosion of popularity in the celebrating of Christmas, more extravagant than ever from one year to the next.
1: Okay, so now that we've set the scene, let's talk about your granduncle, John Duval Gluck. He was the oldest of five brothers and grew up in Westfield, New Jersey. For a while, it seems like he was destined for a quiet life running the family business, no?
2: He followed in his father's footsteps in uh, customs-broking work and took over for his father after he passed away. He had a pretty, pretty savvy managerial mind and a passion for bigger things.
1: What were those bigger things?
2: In 1913, he heard that there were all these letters that kids were writing to Santa Claus that because Santa wasn't didn't have a formal address, he wasn't an actual person that could receive letters, they would just go to the dead letter office and be destroyed. The general population protested, having these little childish wishes just be destroyed, the post office said that if someone was interested in taking over these letters and finding someone to answer them, they could uh, get permission as long as the postmaster of the the local city uh, gave approval. And that's where John Duvall Gluck Jr. spotted an opportunity to kind of play Santa Claus for New York City.
1: So this is when he formed the Santa Claus Association, right?
2: Yeah, it was an operation that could be the middleman between the kids that were asking Santa for things, and the generous New Yorkers who wanted to see these letters answered. He presented this idea to the postmaster who was impressed with what Gluck was suggesting and went ahead and, and approved that he could be the person in New York City to answer Santa's letters.
1: Gluck immediately put his plan in motion. He got a Midtown restaurant to donate a small office so he and his team of volunteers could set up shop. Just weeks after forming his charity, they're going through letters from the children of New York.
2: They opened them, inspected them, made sure that they were legitimate, and then they uh, matched them with donors who uh, were in the city who said that they would be happy to answer these letters. So, uh, you know, Jimmy asked for a a new uh, cowboy hat. Uh, They would send that letter to somebody in New York who would then purchase the cowboy hat and could either mail that back to Jimmy or could even deliver it themselves to his address. So it created this real personal touch where if you were somebody that maybe wasn't all that inspired by the idea of just cutting a check to some other charity, this was a way to uh, kind of play Santa Claus and to actually see the impact that your generosity was having.
1: In its first year, Gluck's Santa Claus Association got off to a good start. But by the time Christmas 1914 rolled around, it was a flat-out sensation.
2: The papers covered it breathlessly, and many New Yorkers came forward to donate uh, gifts and to take part in this, but also got attention for sort of the innovation of what Gluck put together, of this sort of all-volunteer force doing good, and, and there's willing givers, there's willing recipients, and Gluck was just there to kind of help connect those two things.
1: Volunteers included high society ladies and men of industry who wanted to make a difference. They spent hours tracking letters from thousands of New York children and proudly did it all for free.
2: He said early in the launch of the group, this, we don't accept money, we're not here to get asked for donations. All we're asking is for generous New Yorkers to come forward and answer a letter.
1: It wasn't just his charity that was getting praise. John Duval Gluck Jr. was happy to step into the spotlight, too.
2: It wasn't just about this great organization he was starting. It was all about him. He really played up things, like the fact that he was actually born on Christmas Day made him sort of cosmically poised to take on this role.
1: Gluck might have started the charity with the very best of intentions, but it quickly became a way to get much more than he gave.
2: The first year, he requested money for postage. I think it was like a hundred bucks or something like that, that would cover like two thousand stamps at the time, and they received it. But already, he's kind of going against what he, the sort of stated mission of the group. And then by the next year, they're hosting these benefit shows where they're bringing in hundreds of dollars that would have covered any kind of administrative expenses, especially when everybody working for it is a volunteer. Yet, within days of this big, successful sold-out benefit show, he's asking for more money for postage again. And then soon they're selling these seals where you can put these on the letters that you send. And then they're selling uh, Santa Claus annuals where it's compiling photos of all the volunteers along with uh, little messages from Claus, And they're selling those and not only charging 25 cents A copy, but they're also selling advertisements within these annuals. So all these extra money-making schemes start popping up over the years, and it just snowballs. There starts to be a lot more money involved, and fewer and fewer answers about
1: where the money's going. On Christmas Day in 1915, Gluck announced his grandest plan yet. He'd construct a massive building right in the middle of Manhattan. The exterior would be white marble, and the front would have an arched portal 20 feet deep. The first floor would house charities for children. There'd be a toy fair that went on all year round. But the building's purpose was more than just office and toys. It would also be a monument to Santa Claus.
2: It's gonna have a giant stained glass image of Santa at the front illustrations around the building uh, from great celebrated illustrators of the time, all for the low, low price of $300,000.
1: Over the next several years, Gluck kept fundraising for his Santa Claus building, but somehow the project never got built.
2: He spoke very little about the building after this initial announcement, and whether that was because there wasn't enough money coming in to actually make it happen or what seems more likely that there may have been some money coming in at least and it was not being allocated towards trying to make this building a reality.
1: Once he got the Santa Claus Association firmly up and running, Gluck began to dip into other charity work. He starts
2: a number of other organizations, like an alternate rival Boy Scout group that he kind of becomes the lead fundraiser for that really is created just to get funds from the patriotic public without actually applying them toward anything. He has a a group called the Citizens Secret Service he launches, where you can, you know, cut a check and and become a uh, protector of of the U.S. from from spies.
1: But these new charities don't have the same cachet and quickly get exposed as frauds.
2: He was investigated and shut down by everything from the the Bureau of Investigation to uh, the, the New York Attorney General, but the Santa Claus Association stayed above this somehow.
0: This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit americourt.gov yourmoment today.
1: Over the next 15 years, the Santa Claus Association becomes a New York institution. But around 1927, Gluck's long-running scheme starts to unravel.
2: Around this time was when he shifted tactics into not just kind of sending out gifts and asking for donations in the press for administrative costs, but sending out letters that explicitly asked, can you cut a check for $100 and send it to the Santa Claus Association? And this was not even within the period of December, which had kind of been the policy for the post office up to that point. That was the month when you could do this Operation Santa Claus.
1: The new fundraising tactics catch the attention of a politically ambitious bureaucrat named Bird Kohler who just so happened to be the Public Welfare Commissioner of New York City.
2: This was a guy who oversaw the the city's charities and was sort of the accountant for the city, somebody that kind of pioneered standards in charities. So he eventually got wind of the Santa Claus Association, and he wanted to know where this money was going.
1: Kohler starts looking into the association's structure and found that there was just one man spending the money and calling the shots, John Duval Guck, Jr.
2: It was pretty clear, just looking at the numbers, there was a lot of discrepancies that, that raised a number of questions. A $10,000 fund that just vanished one year. Um, there was rental costs, even though the group had been staying rent-free in the offices that had been occupying, increasing salaries for an increasing number of people, even though it still claimed that uh, it was, a, you know, an all-volunteer organization. A lot of questionable
1: things. Kohler takes his findings to the press. And when the news breaks to the public, it's a huge scandal.
2: Gluck was furious about it, made a major public you know, appeal and denied any wrongdoing. But it all started to fall apart when the thinness of the group's records and the, all the claims that Gluck had been making. So in the Christmas of 1928, the post office ceased to send Santa letters to Gluck. And that was what finally undid the group.
1: Gluck got lucky. He was disgraced but at least nobody took him to court.
2: He kind of absconds to Florida after that with tens of thousands of dollars that are that are unaccounted for, uh, which at the time is a huge amount.
1: Well, that's certainly quite a story. I'm now talking with AARP fraud expert Amy Nofsiger. Amy, how are you?
3: Thank you for having me back.
1: Amy is AARP's fraud expert and has been a guest on the podcast a number of times, sharing her wealth of knowledge and how people can best protect themselves from con artists particularly during the holiday season. Amy, we just listened to an incredible story about a scam that happened back in the 1920s. As we've discussed on this podcast, scams and con artists have been around for a long time. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like they're going to go away anytime soon. So as we start to prepare for the fast approaching holiday season, are there any modern holiday scams we should be looking out for?
3: So that's a really good question. And I will say this, scams happen Throughout the whole year, regardless which holiday is coming up. But one of the things we know is during the holiday season, we are so busy and we're not necessarily preparing ourselves, so to speak, for that next phone call or for the letter in the mail. So, what I think the scammers do is they play on us just being so busy to then go and victimize us even harder during the holiday season. They know how busy we are. So, some of the things that we certainly see during the holiday season are increased phone calls to your house, right? Scammers know that you're going to be home more. You're going to be waiting for family. You're going to be wrapping presents. You're going to be doing whatever we do during the holiday season. So really watch out for any unsolicited phone calls that come into your house. And one of the best pieces of advice, and it's so so simple, is I like to ask people to put a refusal script by their phone. So this could be even as small as a post-it note that just sits on your phone that says, remember, This might be a scammer. Do not give any personal information, bank account, information, credit card number, and certainly no gift cards, right? Because that's one of the things that scammers want are these prepaid gift cards. So, right, what that does is if you're cooking dinner and the phone rings and you quickly pick it up, all of a sudden you remember it might be a scammer. So you're putting up your arsenal. Some other things that we see are definitely phishing emails. So this is where you might get an email from even a shipping company that says, Hey, Ms. Nofsiger, we have a package for you, but um, we tried to deliver it, and it was undeliverable. Please click on this link and verify your information so we can get the package out to you. Once again, we are so busy, and we're expecting a lot of packages this time of the year. So we might click on that link, and certainly when we do click on that link, they're going to be asking us for personal information and potentially your credit card and bank account information as well.
1: You know, the holiday season can be a very emotional time for people. How do con artists use this to their advantage to separate you from your money?
3: So what they do is they get you to think. Just like you said, they get you to think emotionally. During the holiday season can often be a time where maybe we are separated from our families. And so one of the things that we know is that the grandparent scam actually might ramp up during the holiday season because social isolation is a huge problem in our country. And not all families are getting together during the holiday season. So the scammer, might call grandma and pretend to be their grandson and say that they're out of the country, maybe they're on college break, and they went out of the country with a bunch of friends, they got arrested, and they need your help fast. And there's grandma sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, I have to help him. I'm the only one that can help him right now. What do I need to do? And so certainly then the scammer has control over grandma's emotions and can pretty much tell her to do whatever he wants her to do, which we always know ends with grandma sending money. So that's again, that's where that little postcard or that little post-it note by the phone that just kind of jars you back into that cognitive thinking and not that emotional thinking is really important. One of the other things that I like to remind people, if you are with family and friends this holiday season, this is the perfect time as a group to even just have a conversation about frauds and scams. Right. You're together. And you want to do it in a way that really engages everybody in the conversation, not in a paternalistic way like do this. Don't do that. Never do this. Say, hey, mom, dad, did you read that article or did you listen to the ARP podcast and hear about this scam? What would you do? If someone called you and said that your grandchild was in trouble or that you needed, you know, a virus update on your computer, how would you handle that? And actually kind of role play in a fun way for people to understand what kind of scams are going on. That's one of the things that I've recommended to adult children in my whole career on how to kind of discuss this sometimes sensitive subject with older loved ones in their life and that role playing or the current events is a really great way to do it, and then it doesn't, you know, victim blame, so to speak, about getting upset with the older person. I actually had a friend text me yesterday that said their mother was a victim of the tech support scam. Mm. She had gotten the phone call that her computer was um, had a virus and only they could get it off, so they remote accessed into her computer. And then I asked and I said, did she send money, credit cards, and he said prepaid gift cards. Mm. And I went over the steps that I do with anybody. But one of the things I said is, whatever you do, do not get upset with your mom. Make sure you tell her that there are hundreds of thousands of victims of this scam every year and that's why it's a really good scam and the scammers are really good at what they do. But if you yell at her, she's going to shut down and she's not going to communicate with you anymore. So that's, again, that's why around the holiday season, it's a perfect opportunity to have these conversations with the people in your life.
1: I really love that idea of the post-it. We haven't heard that on the show yet before. So mm-hmm. that's a really, really great tip.
3: Well, it's interesting because it's so simple. But um, even myself, um, I still have a landline, yes. And if I'm, um, you know, cleaning, running around my house and the phone rings and I run over and I see what's on caller ID, you know, don't trust caller ID because, right, it might be a spoofed number, but you look over and you're like, oh, I'll pick it up, right, because you're just busy, you're just doing. But if that little tiny note right there kind of jars you back into the present day, into the present moment and says, ah. This might be a scammer looking for personal information. Then you can pick up the phone and actually be in control of it and not them be in control of you. But where should people go to actually report it? You know, really, I like to say any open door. Right. So wherever you feel comfortable reporting it, report it, because reporting it is the most important thing. But. You know, ARP does have its ARP's Fraud Watch Network helpline. And so I'm certainly going to have people go there if they don't want to go to their local law enforcement or to their attorney general's office. And we have trained volunteers who pick up the phone and they're peers, right? They are getting these scam calls just like yourself. And they sit there and they talk to you and they listen to your story. And most importantly, they listen without judgment. They're not in a hurry to get your information and get off the phone. But we've had volunteers talk to people. You know, our average call, I think, is about 22 minutes. I mean, that's a considerable amount of time Mm -hmm. because we want you to – one, report your your victimization of the scam. We want you to know the steps that you can take potentially to get money back, if that's a possibility, because in a lot of these cases, the money is gone. If you need to report it to law enforcement, we'll certainly help you get to the right law enforcement agency to report it. But then we want you to feel empowered when you get off the phone. And our volunteers are very skilled at doing that because we know it's not if you're going to get another phone call or another scam email or letter. It's when. So our volunteers will really help you set up your arsenal and prepare you for the next time you're going to get one of those scam calls. So then the next time you do not lose money.
1: Amy, as always, thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast. Is there any final tip you want to share?
3: Um, I don't think so. But just remember this holiday season, it's like the scammers are out there 365 days a year. But during the holiday seasons, we're certainly a lot busier. So just keep your guard up. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you.
1: If you or someone you know has been the victim of a fraud or scam, call AARP's Fraud Watch Network Helpline at 877-908-3360. Thank you to our team of Scambusters, producer Brooke Ellis, and of course, our audio engineer Julio Gonzalez. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For AARP, The Perfect Scam, I'm Julie Getz.